ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to lead and guide us and show us what you would like us to see. And we just thank you for your care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Job chapter 14. This is the third chapter where Job is continuing his response to, to Zophar. Zophar. Uh, Zophar's argument was that God is too big to understand and that we cannot be righteous enough to be able to understand and follow God. So Job is spending a long time answering those two arguments. So here we go with chapter 14. Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower that, and is cut down. He flees as a shadow and continues not. And does, and do you open your eyes upon such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can be clean? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Seeing his days are determined and the number of his months are with you, but uh, you have appointed his bounds and he cannot pass. Turn from him that he may rest till he shall accomplish as a hireling his day. For there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stalk of it die in the ground, yet though the scent of water it will bud, and bring forth boughs like a plant. But man dies and wastes away, yea, man gives up the ghost, and where is he? As the waters fail, we'll stop there. There's quite a bit there. <laughs> so here we have Job going on. And his first statement is that a man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of troubles. I think he's really understanding it at this point because he is having a lot of trouble. <laughs> but he's also understanding the mort mortality of man. Um, what is a few days? Well, that's kind of relative. You know, it's... Uh, when you were in the patriarchs before the flood, a few days was anything less than a thousand. <laughs> uh, after the flood, got to be about a hundred, hundred and twenty years, uh, and to our day, somewhere between, you know, sixty to a hundred years. And but we all know that there is a point where death comes. We are not going to be living for eternity. Now we have lots of people who are rich and scientists all trying to work on how to get man to live forever, uh, but it won't happen because we are mortal. And you know this is the problem. And we don't fully understand because the scientists understand that our body is designed to replicate and, and stay, stay fresh, but we get old. Uh, but they can't understand why, and it's because of the sin and the, and the death that has been in the body. But God created us to be able to keep going without death and without sin in the in the in the body then the body would have stayed going for theoretically eternity uh, but because of the sin it doesn't and he says and is full of trouble and this word for a fill a full is abundantly situated or satiated and may, and if you know the word satiated it means to be full not overstuffed, but completely full. You're not, not hungry anymore. So he's saying you're getting so much trouble in your life that you're completely full of trouble. Um, and this trouble is this whole idea of turmoil and agitation. This is what Job is really you know, looking at. But he's also saying this in a more general sense, that we as human beings, because of the sin in our world and the sin in our life, we have trouble. All right, uh, and if we look at it negatively, we all know that we have trouble. If it wasn't for looking at the fact that God is in control, we could look at our life and say, wow, my life has been miserable if we want to dwell on the things that go wrong. Now, as a Christian, I go, God's in control. He's got a plan. He's, you know, and it's, I concentrate on all the stuff that's going right and how he's used everything to, to be good. At the state where Job is at right now, he's not looking at any of this stuff being good. He just says, I'm miserable. Most, a lot of the people I know have been miserable. And this is one place where he doesn't fully understand the Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good. He hasn't gotten to the end of his 
of this trial period yet. And so he is just saying, life is miserable. Kind of like, Joe, uh, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, you know, uh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. And, you know, complaining about how bitter his life is and that nothing is working out. And, and you know, it's very interesting because I hear so many people, especially that aren't Christians, talking about how miserable life is. You know, you live your life and you're in misery and then you die. And you talk to some people and you go, you would swear nothing ever good has ever happened to them because all they concentrate on is the troubles in their life. And it's like, anything good, can you count any blessings anywhere? Nope, it's all bad. Nothing good. And you know, it probably is true. If you don't have God in your heart and in your life, everything is bad. What do you have to look forward to? You know, there's nothing in control, nothing, no one controlling things. So it does seem to be a miserable existence. And here's where Job's at at this moment. My life is miserable. You know, I don't have any kids. I don't have any wealth. My wife is telling me to curse God and die. I've got these wonderful friends telling me how, how awful I must be in secret. You know, I just wish everybody would just leave me alone and I would, you know, in, in my life. And so he's at that point. And he goes, man comes forth like a flower and is cut down or literally trimmed back, uh, pruned back. Um, uh, he flees also as a shadow. So he's talking about how a shadow disappears from the, from the light. When, it, when lights come on, the shadows or disappear. When light is pulled off, the shadow disappears. Or you get into different light and the shadow moves. You can't catch a shadow. He's talking about how bad life is. He goes, it's really short. You're always being pruned back. And as a plant, you die quickly. All right? And this is a picture that is often used in the scripture, that we are like grass. We are like flowers. Uh, talking about the desert flowers that we know so well. Get a little bit of rain, the desert flowers all come out. They stay out for about two or three days until everything gets hot and dry, and they die away. And so this is what he's talking about. We are like flowers. You know, we pop up, we bloom. And then we're either cut back by somebody else or God cuts us back or heat destroys it. And so he's at a very negative point right now. But basically his point is that life is short. Life is short. And this is really true no matter how old we get to be, life is is short. Uh, And, you know, it's been always amazing that... uh, when I was younger, I never expected to be, you know, 40, never expected to be 50. Now it's looking like I may get to be in the 80s like most of my family gets into. So maybe I'll be very fortunate to live to the 80s or 90s. And uh, maybe God will come back before that and life will be cut short soon, you know, which would be even greater. But this is his point that life is uncertain. We are not in control. And one of the things we really do understand is we are not in control of our life. And, you know, the deaths we've seen this weekend here in town, the, the deaths we've seen over the over a period of time, shows us how short life is and how quick life terminates. And as I've said many times, everybody who dies had plans. Doctor's visits, uh, you know, all kinds of things on their schedule that they were supposed to do. And all of a sudden... You don't have to do them anymore because you don't care. <laughs> Once you're dead, you don't care what's going on with the rest of, rest of this. And this, here's what he's saying on here. And he says, and continues not. This idea of endures not. There is this point where your life ends. And he goes, and then he says, very interesting, and do you open your eyes upon such a one and bring me into judgment with you. you now this is being right at Zophar. He's going, you know, are you going to carry me into judgment with you? He understands this idea that, the, that when people judge you, they're usually judging on what they would be doing in the first place. And this is something I've noticed many times over the years. Liars believe that everybody lies because they lie. Thieves believe that everybody steals. When somebody really, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, I see a problem, but it's another thing when somebody's really judging and attacking you for it. 
Because usually what they're judging you and attacking you for is something they have a problem with already. Otherwise, they could be a lot more gentle with you. And so Job is saying, what kind of, what kind of helpers are you? you know, uh, are, do you really have a bad relationship with God that you're now pushing your bad relationship with God on me? And so he's really coming after him on this aspect of, you know, who are you to be bringing this kind of a judgment against me? Are you going to carry me to judgment on something that you're already having trouble with? And, you know, I've seen this over and over when I've done counseling of employees and, and trying to do uh, counseling of problems and everything. People attack each other. And usually when you get down to the bottom core of it, the one that's doing the worst attacking has the problem, you know, the, the problem themselves, even though they may not admit it or show it, you find out that they had the same problem that they're attacking supposedly in the other person. And we want to be very careful about this. When we see ourselves wanting to judge somebody, we need to look at our life and say, do I have a problem in this area? And we want to be very careful about that uh, as we go forward. Then he gives a proverb, and you know, I thought I fully, fully understood this, and I kind of looked it up, and none of, the, none of the commentators know what it means. But it says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Now, when I read this, I had no problem understanding that man is sinful and cannot be clean. But apparently, the commentators don't understand that that's what it says. <laughs> uh, to me, that's exactly what he says. You know, how can, how can unclean sinners become clean? And it fits the context. What is, what is uh, Zophar said that he's been arguing? That... Man cannot be righteousness, righteous, righteous enough to approach God. So I find this is the context of his argument. I have no problem with him saying this very statement. How can unrighteous people be righteous before God? Oh, so you're not saying if they're unrighteous, then they get saved. Then they get clean, but they, they never get saved. Right. He's not, he's not, he's not going that far. He's not going that far. His understanding of sacrificial system covers his sin, and then God is the only one that can accept you because of the sacrifice. But what he's saying is, how can somebody who's a sinner be righteous before God in his own strength? So, and this is a true statement. It is, if without Christ in our life being our sacrifice, we cannot stand before God and cannot be pure before him. And this is the one thing, and I've said this so many times, you talk to people, you witness to them, and you're going, well, why should, you, why should God, well, I'm a good person. No, no, you don't understand. You're not good enough to be standing before God because you are unrighteous at your heart. And you cannot stand before God. And that's what I saw in this verse. But I just kind of threw it out. You know, I started looking at commentaries just to see it. And this is my warning on commentaries. Be careful reading commentaries. Because <laughs> they don't usually, they don't always know what they're talking about. They're very smart people. They're very well trained, but they may or may not know what they're talking about. And to me, it was very obvious. The context of this chapter goes all the way back to Zophar's complaint that we cannot be good enough you know, to, to come to God. And Job is agreeing. You know, how can an unrighteous, unclean man be clean before God? Who can do it? And he goes, no one in their own strength. All right? And... Uh, then seeing that his days are determined and the number of his months are with you, you have appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. In other words, God, you're in control of the lifespan of the person. And this is something that we all know at some point we're going to die, hopefully. I, I've heard some people say, if I die. You know, I'm going, well, I don't know about that. I think every one of us is going to die. Now, the when is a whole other story. But this is a great statement. He's understanding that God has already determined or decided your lifespan. When you were born, God already know, knew how long you were going to live. Whether it was three days, uh, for, you know, being dying as a child, or 300 days, or 300 years, God already knew when you were born how long you were going to live. And it says, and the number of his months are with you. All right, so the days and months, and has appointed 
his bounds or the, you know, the whole idea that he has already decided how long somebody's going to live. This goes down to the statement I heard long ago and I totally agree with it. Until God decides that you are going to die, you are invincible. You can do anything you want and, and not die. The only problem is you don't know the day that God says you're going to die, so I would not tempt that too far. <laughs> All right. But until that day, you are invincible. You cannot die. Now, you may suffer consequences for doing dumb things, but, and it doesn't matter how careful you are, when you hit the day that God says is your last day, you are, you are going to die. It doesn't matter how many vitamins you're taking, how much exercising you've been doing, how clean your body's been, and how pure your body's been, and, and everything. When you hit that day that it is time to go home, you're dying. And no matter how bad you treat your body, you're not going to die until the day that God says you're going home. Now, both of them have consequences involved with them. Yeah, if you're mistreating your body terrible, then you're going to have the aches and pains and the trials of having treated your body right. If you've been living a healthy lifestyle, then you'll be more healthy and energetic on the day that you die. But when you hit that day that God says you're going to die, <laughs> you're going to die no matter what. And he says God already knows your boundary. He knows what you're, when you're going to die. Why? Well, because God knows the beginning from the end. Now, your story is already written as far as God's concerned because he's outside of time. So he already, he already knows, sees it from the beginning to the end. And that's hard to understand, but God already knows this is when they're going to die. Yep, that's exactly when they're going to die. I already know. I wrote it in the book. And this is what Job is saying. And this is an understanding of death that people have a hard time understanding. How can this man know this, this concept that God is in control of all aspects and they have trouble with this turn from him that he may rest till he shall accomplish as a hireling his day and this whole idea turn is actually gaze upon a regard regard him that he may rest now this is something that Job is really hoping for he goes God you've turned your hand against me would you just turn away and he said it several places turn away so that I can get some rest let your hand, in the previous chapter, he said, take your hand off me so that I can, you know, rest. Here he's saying, regard the trouble that I'm in and pull back so I can rest. You know, and Paul, uh, Paul uh, Job is really understanding this. He is in so much pain that he probably isn't sleeping. And some of us have had those times when you're in so much pain, you're in so much agony that you cannot sleep. Here he is, you know, every time he's sitting there, he's scratching and scratching those boils, scratching the, scratching it. He cannot get to sleep. And, you know, uh, then he gets so tired, he'll sleep fitfully for an hour or two, probably get back up and start scratching at his body again. All right. Uh, I've had the pain with gout where I couldn't sleep. Uh, and various people have had different ailments that, you know, and you get kind of miserable when you can't sleep. And you get a little irritated when you can't sleep, and your emotions start getting messed up, and your and your temper starts getting <laughs> getting up, you know, because you're just so tired. And this is where what he's talking about. And till he accomplish or makes acceptable as a hireling his day. And this word for hireling is the worker that is getting paid a wage. So he goes. And they had a lot of, at that time, we would have called them day, day laborers. When you got a job, you went out, you got, and you expected to be paid that day for the work you did that day because you needed it. You didn't, you didn't have money in the bank. You didn't have food in the bank. They needed that, and they were to be paid every single day for their labor. And matter of fact, God has put some strong you know, curses on those that did not pay their laborers every day. Uh, and so he says, you know, he should, until he gets approved as a hireling for the day, gets his wages for the day. And so he's understanding that we are God's servants and that God is going to pay the service or give us what we deserve, which if we get what we deserve, we're in trouble. 
So he's understanding that. And he goes, for there is one, there is hope for a tree that if it is cut down, that it will sprout again and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, the stock thereof and the stock thereof die in the ground. And this is what would happen. If you cut down a tree and just leave it there, it tends to come back if its roots are deep enough. And, you know, they like to wrap it around there. But he's basically saying even if the, even if the stump rots away, there's still hope for that tree with deep roots to come back. And, you know, we've got some stupid trees around my house that planted themselves and they're too close to the house. We keep trying to pull them up, but we can't get the full taproot out. And within another year, they'll pop back up and they grow super fast. And these wild trees are crazy and you pull them back out and, you know, and this I understand really well. All right. Uh, and it, and we, see, we see the pictures of them where they'll show a stump lid in there and then there'll be this one little branch coming out of the middle of it. You know, and he's saying there's hope for a tree. It, it's hard to kill the tree. And that's what he's trying to say. It's hard to kill that tree. There's hope for it even if that stump uh, comes in. Um, and then verse 9, yet though the scent of water, it will bud and bring forth boughs like a plant. So he says, given enough water, that tree will, will spring back to life. And this is, God uses this of our description in the Psalms. We shall be like trees planted by the water, waters. And no matter what happens to that tree, that tree grows during the summer if it's close enough to water. It may wilt a little bit, but eventually the water will give it strength. I've seen this with uh, my wife taking care of plants. You know, sometimes they'll wilt or be dead, and she gives them a little bit of water, a little bit of food, and the next thing you know, there's a, a plant growing like crazy. Uh, plants do have a lot of resilience and will come back, especially trees, because trees live to be hundreds of years old, uh, if they're taken care of at all, outside <laughs> of fire. Uh, but even, in, even in, in places where the fire goes, the trees will come right back up, you know, quickly after, after the fire gets done and sometimes grow really back fast because of all the nutrients that were put back into the ground. So we see all of that going on. And then it says, verse 10, but man dies and wastes away, yea, man gives up the ghost, and where is he? So it says, when a man dies, they're dead. <laughs> kind of makes sense. Uh, you know, that when we die, we're dead. And this is going to be something that he is going to understand that there's no hope for a man who's died. And later on, he's going to explain that he's going to soften this when he gets a little bit of thinking. He's going to realize, especially in Job 19, he's going to talk about the future resurrection that man stands before God even after he's dead. So at this point, he's kind of, you know, expressing his sadness, you know, that man dies, he's dead. You know, he's not going to come back to life. But later on, he's going to talk about the resurrection of the, of the body being restored to man and that they will stand before God in eternity. So... But at this point, he's expressing the idea that when you die, you're dead. You're not getting back up. Uh, you're not, there's no hope for you. We're not going to bury you, bury you in the ground and water you and hope that you come back. Uh, he's going to go, once, you're, once a man dies, his spirit leaves, and he is done. And so this is showing where he's at with it. He goes, they, that when a man dies and wastes away, yea, he gives up the ghost, and where is he? Now, this is a rhetorical question he's asking, though he knows that this man is either before God or in hell. He's going to talk about that later on. So he understands you know, that when a man dies, he's not coming back in this world, but there is his spiritual state. And that says, where is he? All right. Uh, I'm not going to see him until I join, that, join him. And this is the good news for us as as believers, when we die, we get to go home. And I love that. I know, like when my dad died, I know he's a Christian. I know, I know he went home. 
There's been many people that have, in my lifetime that have died that I don't know for sure where they are. I hope that they went to, went to heaven, but I don't know where they went. And that kind of makes me a little sadder because my, my question would be, like he says, where, are, you know, where is he? Where, where is she? Where is, where is he? Did they enter into the presence of God or did they end up outside the presence of God? And this is something that is hard and we can't really fully judge. You know, when we get to know some people, we can really understand this person I know knows God because their whole life is showing that they know God. All right. Uh, there's other people and you look at them and going, wow, I don't know. You know, I'm not seeing any growth. It's between them and God. That, and then there's some I'm just pretty sure that aren't. And even then, I can't even be sure that they're not because uh, they might have had that one experience. It was a real experience with God, but not, not grown. And this is one of the things that is really hard for us to be able to fully comprehend. We get to heaven by God's grace and acceptance of Jesus Christ not by what we do after or even before. And I've known some people that are very loving, kind people. They would give you the shirt off their back and everything else besides, and, but they don't know Jesus. And people looking at them say, well, that person deserves to go to heaven. No, they're still a sinner that is not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then I've known some people who are terrible, awful people, but you know, they, I think that they've actually accepted Jesus Christ and, and they're gonna get to go to heaven because of the blood of, blood of Jesus Christ. You know, I have a little trouble believing that they're saved, but that's still between them and God. They claim, they claim to be. And I'm going, okay, you're not living like you're supposed to, but it's between you and God. You know, and this is something that drives people crazy. I've had people tell me, well, you're telling me that Hitler, if he you know, said a prayer before, before he died, would be in heaven. Yes, I'm telling you. Well, then I don't want to go to heaven. Well, then you'll be with all the Hitlers who didn't go, didn't confess and spend eternity with them. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make much sense to make that argument, but that's up to you. And that is hard for people to really accept that somebody can be an awful, terrible person on the last second before they die, ask God to, you know, to cover their sins and be their, you know, be their savior and go to heaven. But that's also because they don't understand how bad their sin is before God without Jesus Christ. Yeah. And we need to understand God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't grade on, you know, you're, you're three quarters of the way there, quarters of the, the way to where you're supposed to be so you get to go to heaven. No, it is, you are either perfect, and the only way to be perfect is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, or you're not. 99.9% .9 pure is not going to get you into heaven. Not that anybody's even come that close, but, you know, you could be 99.9% .9 righteous and that 0.1% is going to keep you from being acceptable to God. And this is really hard for people to understand. The worst person you can think of if they actually turn to God in their last moments and, and confess their sins and turn to Christ would be in heaven. The thief on the cross. But it is really hard for people to accept that idea. You know, well, they didn't do anything to deserve it. Well, neither did you. But I've been a Christian all my life. I, you, know, you still didn't deserve any. You, you still don't des you know, deserve to be in heaven. You know, all you did was turn your life over to Jesus, and then he used you for a longer time than he did for that person who gets saved at the last moment. But it's still him that did the work, and it's him that gave you the ability to do anything in the first place that is going to be acceptable. And this is sometimes very hard for people to get hold of. Paul, the biggest reason is, of course, we as human beings like to grade sins. You know, this is a really bad sin. If I do this one, it's an automatic ticket to hell. But these ones, well, I have to get an accumulation of them before it's a, a ticket to hell. And that's not how God looks at it. Uh, and I love it because Proverbs tells us, you know, these, these things God hates. And what's he put in there? Lying lips, we're, lips that spill, that spill gossip and, you know, all these little things that we think are as, you know, no, no big deal. Those, those aren't the big things. They're, they're the little sins. And God says he hates them. You know, he hates those things. And we need to really get to the understanding of do we see sin the way God sees sin? And when we start to really understand sin the way God sees it,
then it really does repulse us, even the little stuff that we end up doing. Um, you know, I've had people go, well, you can, you could say that, you know, you could do that. And I go, no, it's a lie. I cannot say it. All right. Well, you can tell them that I'm not here. Are you here? <laughs> I cannot tell them that you're not here if you're here. All right. If you want to get out of the room, then I can tell them that, no, you're not in the room, but I, I will not tell them otherwise. And I had one guy goes, well, I wouldn't tell him. I go, no, I'm a man of integrity. I cannot, I cannot do what you're asking to do. You know, whether, whether I got caught, whether you, whether you would say anything, whether anybody else would, God would know. Yeah, but they don't want that part. They don't want that part. They don't want that much honesty out of you. So, all right. So he says, you know, but man gives up. Uh, verse 11. As the waters fail from the sea, and the water decays and dries up, the flood decays and dries up, so man lies down and rises not. Till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleeping. Oh, that you would hide me in, in the grave and that you would keep me secret until your wrath be passed and thou, that thou would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I await till my change come. You shall call and I will answer you. You, you will have a desire to the, to the work of your hands for now you numbered my steps. Do you not watch over my sins? My transgression is sealed in a bag, and you have sewed up my iniquity. All right, so here he goes. But man, uh, uh, as the waters fail from the sea. Now, the word fail literally is evaporates. What? Evaporates. He understood that the water hit the sea, and it evaporated out of the ocean and the seas. So he says, as the, as the seas evaporate and the flood dries up and, dry, and dries away. All right? And that's exactly what happens to floods. They wash away and they evaporate, but they kind of just dry up. He goes, as these things happen, so, is a, so man lies down and rises no more. At some point, they're going to die. And he says, it's as sure as the water... <laughs> Uh, evaporating as sure, sure as the flood drying, drying up, man will die. He understands mortality. He's uh, saying there is not anybody who's going to die. We're told in the New Testament it is appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment. All right. Uh, there are only two people in the Bible that are recorded as having not died. And that would be uh, Enoch and Elijah. They're the only two people in the Bible that we have a record of having not died. God took them straight home. Everybody else died. Some, somewhere, sometime. And, and he says it, men are going to die. He understands this. He understands that they're going to die. And till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. So he's foreshadowing here because he's going to finish this statement a little later he's going until the end they will not get their resurrected body he goes they'll get to sleep until until that time now he's kind of pushing soul sleep here which i don't believe in but his the his understanding would be that the bodies are gone and they're not going to have a body because they've given up the ghost the spirit has left he already said that earlier the ghost is given up but their bodies sleep until the resurrection, all right? And we understand that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And at the return of Jesus Christ, the dead, the dead bodies will rise first, and then the rest of the bodies will go behind them, and we will have our glorified bodies in heaven waiting for the return to this world, just as Jesus has had his glorified body given to him. Job is saying, you know, the body just goes into the ground and doesn't get back up again. New heaven, new earth. I, yeah, you, you may not recognize the, the millennial kingdom and all of that, you know, because that would be theology that's a little bit beyond, yeah. beyond him. But he says, I'm going to get a new body. Basically, we're going to get a new body. All right. Um, 
but my body is going to stay in this ground and be, just lay there and decay until, until I get the new body. And we're going to see in a couple places where he talks more about that. Um, and um, he says, they will not wake or raise up out of their sleep. And he goes, oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me and hide me in the grave. And at this point, he's complaining because he is in pain. He's having bad counselors and going, God, would you just put me in the grave and just let me stay there? You know, I, I'm tired of all of this. And he is getting to the point where he's getting tired. All right, he's in pain. He's he's lost everything, and you know it is hard if you lose something important to you, to stay focused on God. And he's doing a wonderful job staying focused on God overall for everything that he's lost. He's lost all of his wealth. He's lost all of his family. He's lost his health, and still staying focused. But he is getting to the point of saying, God, I just I just want to die. And we understand his statement, I just want to die. I can't see how I'm, especially with no health, he doesn't see how he can become a new you know, herdsman or farmer or anything. He, can, he can't get up and walk around because of all the boils and, and pain that he's in. How can he now re, regain his wealth? And so he's kind of despondent at this time. And we would be in his place as well. God, I just don't, you know, uh, one thing to get knocked down and lose everything when you have your health to start all over again. But he doesn't even have his health to be able to start all over again. And he's going, God, would you just kill me? I just, and I'll sleep until it's time to get my new body and, and, and come to you at your call. But just hide me in the grave. <laughs> hide me in the grave because I'm tired of this life. I'm, I don't see any, I have no hope. And he did not have any hope. You know, like I said, he, he has no health. He has no way to be able to be a, be a herdsman, you know, even if he could get two, two or three new goats and lambs, he's going, I can't, I can't monitor them. I don't have the money to pay for, pay for uh, a shepherd. Uh, I, I just want to, you, know, you know, God, hide me. Hide me in the grave. <laughs> uh, and it says that you would keep me secret or hidden. All right. Uh, in this, in, this, in this place, until your wrath has passed, that you would appoint me a set time and then remember me. Because God, I know you're angry with me for some strange reason. I don't know. Would you just hide me in the grave until it's time to call me back at the end? When your wrath is all gone, then, then when my appointed time is done, <laughs> you can you could call me back. And he goes, God, I'll be more than happy to come back on the resurrected body with with nice healthy body and be in your presence again, but until that time, just hide me from your wrath. Now he doesn't understand it's not God's wrath upon him because he didn't have chapter one and two to, like we do. Uh, all he knows is life has become miserable, and he's been obedient to God. Now we understand it because we've read chapter one and two, but we also the same warning I tell people when you step out to serve God. Things happen to you because Satan is going to try to stop you from serving God. And so this is something that he is looking at and saying, he, uh, all I know is life is miserable and God must be doing it to me. You know, for some reason he doesn't seem to understand the presence of Satan and being involved in this picture. And I don't know why, but that is what it is. Many Christians don't understand the presence of Satan and the enemy because they don't you know, see that. And believe me, I know so many people who go, well, I don't understand why all these bad things are happening to me. Well, you're serving God. Well, yeah, so everything should be perfect. No, there's a spiritual battle going on. And people have to understand that whole process. He goes, if a man die, will he live again? All the days of my appointed time, I will wait till my change come. Now, this idea of the change to come is the afterlife. All right. So he understands that there is an afterlife, that God is going to restore, that God is going to, to rebuild. In chapter 19, verse 26, Job says, And though after my skin worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh will I see God. He understands that there is a physical resurrection 
that will take place sometime in the future. All right? And this is what he says, till my change come. All right? He goes, there will be a time that I am going to get a new body. Now, he may not have understood glorified body, but he understands that there's going to come a time when I'm going to get a new body before God. And maybe he fully understood that it would be a glorified, perfect body. And this is something that is very important for us. Our hope in our day is that we will get our resurrected body. It'll be a perfect body. And something that had just been dawned on me while I was up there doing the memorial, we also get a glorified personality in our body. God takes away all the sin nature and all the things we don't like about ourselves or that others don't like about us will be taken away as well. If it's, have, if it's for some sinful reason, sometimes people have other reasons not to like the things, but you know, somebody who is very sarcastic and cutting people down, they won't have that aspect in their glorified body. And this is what Job is saying. There's going to come a time when, I, when the change will be there and I will get this new resurrected body. And he's looking forward. He is really looking forward to it at this point. Before it was like, okay, it's, it's in the future. I'm going to get one, but I really don't care whether I get it or not. Now he's in great pain and suffering and going, I really want my glorified body. You know, I want that new body. All right. You shall call and I will answer you. You will have a desire to the work of your hands. And I love this one. He goes, when you call, I'm going to be ready to answer. Even though I'm dead, when you call, I'm going to immediately answer you. And then he says, and you have a desire for the, to the work of your hands. And this word for desire means that he longs for. You know, it is kind of an amazing thought. This, this is something that has jumped off the page to me in many places because God says, I desire my creation. Mankind, his special creation, God has a great desire, longing for. There's another verse of scripture where he calls us his darling. You know, and it's like he wants us. Now, why God wants us, I don't know. But we are his special creation, and he says he has a desire for this creation that he's created, a longing for, that he says, I want my people to follow me, to be mine. Why? I don't know. Now, we know that God does not need anything, and people will take this one and go way too far off, that God needs our worship and, and all of that. God is complete in himself. He needs nothing. But he seems to want something from us, from, from, her, from his creation. And so we walk a very fine line there between need and want. Uh, the desire to the work of your hands. I think he really desires even before the change. Now, he sees the, he sees the, the bad, but God loves his creation. He loves his creation so much that he died for his creation so that we could be changed. All right. But he loved, for God so loved the world. He has a desire for all of mankind to be his. All right. Now we know that many of them are not going to choose him. Probably the majority are not going to serve him, choose him. But his desire is for all. And it says that God's will is that no one would be, you know, destroyed. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell because he created us to be eternal future. From the moment of our birth to the, to the future, we are eternal beings. Now, our eternity will be decided by our, our choice on this world. Will we spend eternity with him or eternity separated from him in a eternal death situation and that's got to be awful that will be awful when you study hell and all about the burning and the conscience it turns and and all the negative of, of hell it is an awful thing to be looking at and so he is saying that God desires the work of his hands 
Now, he understands that God wants him, and this is part of what makes him not understand why he's going through as much trouble as he's going through. He goes, okay, I know I'm not perfect. I know that I, I can't be fully righteous, but I have been offering the sacrifices. I've done everything God said to do to be, be his child, and look at what I'm going through. And yet I know God desires me. You know, you know, so this is a hard place for him because he's confused. He's very confused. And again, because he doesn't know chapter 1 and 2, he's very confused because he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know about the battle and the spiritual realm for his soul, for his being. And all of these things that he's going through, he uh, goes, for, you, for now you number my steps... Do you not watch over my sin or guard my sin? So he says, God, you've numbered my steps and you know who I am. You, you know me good and bad. You're guarding me over my sins. You're, trying to, you know, you're keeping me from them. You're, you're not watching it. And I love this, this statement. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you sew up my iniquity. He goes, God, you have taken all of my all of my transgression, you've put it into a, to a bag, and then you've sealed it. All right? He understands that God takes away the sin, and then he seals it up so nobody can open it. And then he says, you've sewn up my iniquities. You've sewn them up and, and gotten rid of them as well. So he's understanding that he can only stand before God because God forgives him. And this whole idea of the seal, you know, the closest thing we have to this idea of sealing is we take an envelope, we lick the, the envelope, and we seal the envelope. And it's the same type of idea, except they had to do it with a wax, wax impression that if the wax broke, you, you couldn't be sure that the seal was, was good. And so he says, you've taken all of my transgression, you've put it in a bag, and you have sealed that bag shut. You have put your seal upon it, and say that it is gone. I love this picture that he's understanding. He understands forgiveness from God. And, and he says, you've taken my iniquity and you have sewn it up and got rid of it. This is part of why he doesn't understand what's going on. He's offered his sacrifices. As far as he's concerned, his, his sins are in, in this seal and not going to be an issue. And so this is something that he is really suffering with. And because he is a prosperity gospel person, he really has a trouble with bad things happening to him when he's a sealed person that is, that is good. And, you know, so this is, and that's God's testimony. Remember, God said he's a perfect and upright man that hates evil. So in that aspect, Job is correct in how God seals him, sees him. His transgressions are sealed up because of the sacrifices and his, and his repentance. But God is trying to teach him that bad things do happen to good people. And this is something that the scriptures give us all through the scriptures. Bad things do happen to good people. Not as many bad things happen to good people as, as, as bad people. And the flip side of it is, unfortunately, good things happen to bad people. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Job has to understand that. And this is what he's saying. God, you've sealed up my transgression. I don't understand any of this stuff. It's, it's where we're at. He goes, all right, verse 18. And surely the mountains fall comes to naught, falling come, comes to naught, and the rock is removed out of its place. The waters wear the stones, and they wash away the things that grow out of the dust of the earth. And you destroy the hope of men. You prevail forever against him, and he passes, and you change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor him, and he knows it not. And they are brought low, but he perceives, it not, uh, perceives not of them. But his flesh upon him shall have pain, and his soul within him shall mourn. So here he's talking about, again, the falling away of everything. He goes, the mount, uh, surely the mountains... Falling comes to naught. In other words, they will be washed away given enough time. I don't know how he understands that mountains get eroded that much. 
his life couldn't have been long enough to see it, but maybe he'd watch certain streams be cut. Uh, you know, it's amazing how fast water can cut rock uh, when it flows hard enough and fast enough. And he might be close enough to the flood that he's still seeing the, the, the effects of the water cutting, cutting into mountains and everything. I don't know. We don't know how, how close he is to that point in, in time, how soft the rocks might have still been at that point. And so he's understanding that the mountains, and I love this, and the rock is removed out of its place. You know, and we see this over and over again. If you watch storms, how easily big rocks can be moved by water. And I sometimes look at some of these big rocks as I'm driving along the highway and just wonder how, how much a big rainstorm or a little shaking could, could move some of these rocks down into the road. All right, especially one that is up there by Coyote Pass and it looks so precarious that it can go on. That thing, that thing could fall in a second. And there's other places where you see this. And that's what Job is saying, the rocks get moved. And if you've ever been in, you know, we even see it in the washes. Sometimes you come to the wash after a, after a storm and there are some big rocks that have been moved and sitting in the road or just down the, down the stream a little bit. And you're going, wow. I don't want to be in the wash when that rock comes, comes washing down. Um, and this is what he's saying. The rocks are moved. The very rocks get moved by the power of water. And so he's, he's, being, he's understanding here. And waters wear the stone. And this is kind of interesting because the word for wear is pulverizes. The waters pulverize the stones. And we see that if you're, well, all of our rock collectors here, you get around stones that have been in water and they've been polished, where they've been broken up, you know, and it's an amazing thing how water can break up the stones, cut paths through, through, through rock. And enough water moving fast enough can cut deep canyons quickly. Uh, up at Mount St. Helens, they had that big lake that pulled way up and then rushed down and cut a very deep cavern that everybody would have if they didn't know when it happened, they would have looked at it and said, well, that took millions of years to happen. Well, no, it happened in one night. <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the water raised up and went down and cut heavy rock and cut a deep cavern into it. And this is what he's saying, that the water pulverizes rocks. And the power, the power of water is amazing. All right? Uh, this is what he's talking about. And he goes, you wash away things which grow out of the dust of the earth, and you, just, and you destroy the hope of men. All right? So floods wash away everything that's growing if there's a big enough flood. And he goes, and man's hope can be killed. And this is the sad thing, because I think he's talking about himself at this point. My hope is very much dying. I think he's got just a little tiny bit of hope left in him. And one of the problems is if you lose all hope, you're in trouble. It's very bad to have no hope. And uh, he's saying there, you, you destroy the hope of men. You prevail forever against him. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is going to be one of those things of how bad he is. He goes, God, you're always, always against. Now, he's only had a short few months of, or, or a year of having God's hand against him or Satan's hand against him. But his hope is, is dwindling, so from his perspective, God has always been against him. And this is the problem when we start focusing in on the negative of things. It can really eat up all of our hope, all of our perspective. This is why it's very good to be counting our blessings. And as I've advised, you know, keep a notebook of when God has answered prayers and, and given you things. So that when you do get to this point where it looks like nothing is going your way, you can grab that notebook and saying, oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay, God, I don't know what you're doing now, but you do love me. <laughs> yeah, you do love me, and I do understand you desire me, even though I'm feeling miserable at the moment. You have done good things. And it's really important to be able to come back and be able to say, yes, I know that God has done good things, that he's been there. He goes, and he passes or dies, and you change his countenance and send him away. Or 
You know, so here he's talking about the whole idea of being dismissed from this world. All right? He goes, you will, when he dies, you change his countenance, you change his looks, and then you dismiss him away into, into the to waiting, waiting for his new body. All right? And then it's kind of very interesting to say, his sons come to honor, and he knows it not. He doesn't understand the eulogies. You know, once you're dead, everybody's going to come say nice things about you, and you're not going to hear them. And it's kind of funny, you know, when I go to some of these things and people will talk about, you know, all the good things of somebody they didn't like. Or I've even had people apologize to them sitting there, you know, I apologize to him for treating him this way. Well, it's a little late. They're not hearing you. Uh, and that's what it says. They are brought low, and he knows it not. If, if then bad things happen to your kids after you die, you don't know it. And these are some verses that, you know, that I look at, because I've heard so many people tell me, well, I know grandma or grandpa's watching over me, and they're happy about what they're seeing. I'm going, no, they're paying attention to Jesus if they're in heaven. They're not looking out, 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 out to you at all. Now, it's some, somewhat comforting, but I really don't want them looking at me because I'm going to do enough bad things. I don't want them looking at me anyway. If we're met at the gates, like people say, you know, you're, you're, you'll be greeted at the gates of heaven. Jesus will have to be telling, it's time for you to go to the gates. Your, your son, your daughter, your grandson's coming up, so you go meet them. Because until then, they're not going to be paying any attention to anything. And when I get to heaven... I don't know that I'd be able to take my eyes off Jesus for about a thousand years, much less be wanting to do anything else. But his flesh shall be upon him, his flesh upon him shall have pain, and his soul within him shall have torment. So when we're, when we're faced with God, before we pass away, we will have pain and, and torment. Now, somebody who is not going before God is going to have lots of pain and torment for eternity. If we're with God, we'll have joy and peace. And before that passing away, there can be pain, suffering. And we go through suffering every day or every other day or every third day, whatever. We, we go through pain and suffering. As we get older, our bodies complain a lot more than they did when we were younger. I'm already starting to experience, and I'm not even old yet. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there is this point where we start facing pain just because the body is getting older. And we need to make sure that we're concentrating on the fact that God loves us and cares for us and has a plan even in that pain for us. And this is Job's complaint, and next week we're going to look at Eliphaz giving him a new argument to have to answer. Another good friend. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. Lord, help us to know that you love us, that you really desire us, and that when we feel like we were not loved, that we will turn to you to for your grace and your mercy. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.